Welcome to Authenticity Belonging Community, where I explore the ABCs of inclusivity by conversing with interesting guests from a variety of fields and disciplines about how they foster inclusive workplaces and communities. Today's guest is a prolific writer and thought leader in the DEIB space, whom I was delighted to become aware of through another guest on the podcast. Rhodes Perry has a direct, useful message shaped by his own journey of identity and membership in a supportive community. He urges people to push outside their comfort zone and grant yourself proximity to communities that are unfamiliar to you. Welcome to Authenticity, Belonging, and Community, the podcast that explores the ABCs of inclusivity. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and with me today is Rhodes Perry. And Rhodes is a best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and an internationally sought-after keynoter. I love that word, by the way, keynoter. He helps senior executives and people leaders build belonging at work by establishing psychological safety and trust. Nationally recognized as a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging thought leader, he has over 20 years of leadership experience, having worked at the White House, the Department of Justice, the City of New York, and PFLAG National. Media outlets like Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, and the Associated Press have featured his powerful work. Both of his books, Belonging at Work and Imagine Belonging, debuted as number one Amazon bestsellers and were published by Publish Your Purpose Press. He earned a BA from the University of Notre Dame and an MPA from New York University. He currently serves on the National LGBTQ Plus Chamber of Commerce's Transgender Inclusion Task Force and the Cascade AIDS Project's Board of Directors. Rhodes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here. It's good to have you. That was a mouthful. There's a lot there. That is that is obviously a very impressive and as I talk with all of my guests, we sort of unpack all of that to some degree. We know that bios are used primarily to tout our accomplishments and whatnot, but mostly they don't say a lot about who we are personally or how we see ourselves individually. And so my first question to you is, how do you see yourself? What are the identities that are core to how you see yourself in the world? Absolutely. Um, and I love that question. And I agree. I, I think there's a lot of kind of like filling in the blanks with bios. So um, for me, I know that most folks are listening to this podcast. So um, if you were to see me, I think like initially you would see that I, I'm a white guy, right? Like just in terms of like race and gender, what often people don't see, you know, it takes some time for me to get to know a, another person and share a little bit more about myself part of my gender history, you know, I'm a transgender man. So that's a really important lens um, in terms of how I look at the world. And in particular, the work that I do in organizations in terms of my sexual orientation, I'm a bisexual person, which is also hugely instructive of how I kind of navigate the world and, you know, and trying to dispel a lot of myths that come with that identity. I'm an able-bodied person, you know, I'm a, an athlete. I love to mountaineer when I'm not, <laughs> when I'm not doing work. I live out here in the Pacific Northwest, although, you know, I'm a lifelong East Coaster. So I've, I've been <laughs> out in the Pacific Northwest like the past seven years or so. So it's, it's starting to feel like home, but definitely culturally, you know, it's, it's very different than from, from where I grew up and, and where I've lived most of my adult life as well. 
yeah. so a few few identities there. Right? A few of the identities. And of course, there'd probably be a lot more had we, if, if we went on and discussed things, family relationships and things of those sorts um, would be a part of our identities as well. But based on on that, <laughs> that's not limited at all. <laughs> and I love that you're bridging both the East Coast and the West Coast. You want to have it both ways. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but have you ever felt, and I'm sure I kind of know the answer to this, but have you ever felt walking into a, into a room that your identity was or might be an obstacle of some kind? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I feel like while I'm really comfortable with the identities that I shared with, with you, you know, I think that one of the more tricky pieces and something that can create some static as relationships that I'm building, you know, how far I can go, how deep I can go with someone is connected to, you know, am I safe enough? And do I trust those around me to share more about my gender history mm. to kind of, you know, because when people see me, you know, there's, there's a term, you know, that, that we in trans communities use of, you know, cis passing, cisgender passing. So people may look at me and never suspect that, you know, anything about my gender journey, um, the fact that I was socialized as a girl and young woman and how that shapes how I move and navigate through the world. And I, I view it as a superpower of just being more aware of how gender influences like race and like so many other of our identities, how it influences so many dynamics, right? And um, when I try to bring that into conversations, and it's sometimes it's a big move to be vulnerable to share that initially with people in that, you know, I'm going to take a risk here. It feels like a right risk. And I'm going to trust that when I share this information with another person, that they'll receive it with care. You know, usually I'm surprised when I feel like sometimes I take that risk and I'm like, this person will never <laughs> like I, I have thoughts of like how it might shock them. And and oftentimes I'm surprised in those moments. So that's always being surprised and, del and delighted in, in a good way, you know, is, is a nice feeling. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about, you You mentioned earlier, I'm curious about, about the lens with which you see the world through um, having had this transition. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about your transition and the lens with which you um, see the world. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's it's complicated to answer because there's so many, as you asked it, I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking of, of so many different examples. So little background just for folks, because one, you know, no trans, no one transition is is the same for anyone. It's just kind of, we're a unique person and we, we have unique, I call them gender journeys. So for myself, I mean, I, I knew at a very young age, you know, that, that I was a boy, right? But I I was raised Catholic. I was raised uh, with a Midwestern family uh, who did not like to make waves at all, you know? So so I had a lot of pressure as a young person to conform with gender expectations. And that was really hard. You know, being socialized as a young girl, it was somewhat helpful up until, you know, kind of like maybe 13, 14 to kind of be a quote unquote, a tomboy, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, I can wear my brother's hand-me-downs and it's it's seen as cute, right? Mm. But there is a certain point where it became dangerous, right? I, I grew up in, in Florida, a very different state at that time, you know, in the, the 80s and 90s compared to what it is now, although it still was a hard place to live. Um, and, you know, it became very clear to me that conforming with gender expectations would be a, a safer way to navigate. And I think that was subconscious. You know, I look back on that period of my life and 
it wasn't a conscious choice. It was just, it, it was, it was, I think now looking in hindsight, it was survival. Mm. Um, and I was very fortunate that I could play sports. That was a place that I found where I could kind of hide, you know, or, or at least um, delay. Um, I don't know delay if that's the right word, but just to be able to, you know, show up at school and high school and kind of wear my team uniform and not have to kind of dress in a more gender specific way. And I love that. So, um, so sports and doing well in school was kind of a pathway of help me get out of the state and give me some options to try to figure out who I am in the world. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that I did that because I was able to leave the state for college. And that's where I really started to question all sorts of things about who I am and what I've been told and what I'm, how I'm supposed to be. Like I was definitely raised as, as a people pleaser. Um, and I've spent the rest of my adult life trying to unravel that. But when I was about 19, that's when I started my my social transition. So I, you know, my name is Rhodes. So I started to use that name and using he, him pronouns, you know, and and starting to transition at the University of Notre Dame. That was interesting, right? A very conservative uh, school. However, you know, I, I was in an arts and letters program and I was surrounded by faculty um, advisors that really were pretty progressive um, and supportive and connected me to a lot of resources that I wouldn't have otherwise had access to. And that just, that really was the start of me really being self-actualized, kind of moving more into being in alignment with who who I am today. Yeah. But those early years, I shared all that context because all of that is important in terms of how I show up and how I support leaders, you know, in the work that I do uh, with clients, right? Where thinking about different models of leadership and in the old ways of, you know, being the um, infallible leader that knows everything and leaves uh, with bravado and is very loud and knows everything, you know, it's, we know that that model doesn't serve us in, in the world that we're in now. And I think there's a lot of things that I learned largely through playing women's sports and being surrounded by strong women where it's like, wow, there's a different way to lead. And not that it's kind of based on this binary, you know, men lead this way and women lead this way, but there's there's a dynamic that at least hasn't been, it wasn't necessarily trained, you know, in business schools or, you know, kind of even like in, in the subtle clues of how to navigate workplace culture, those softer traits, and I use that in quotes, but kind of the traits that we talk about, like inclusive behaviors, weren't yes. necessarily rewarded in the past. And I think that's shifting largely for the work that you do, the work that I do, yeah. of trying to help organizations think about culture in a different way. And so I think that lens on gender really helps me draw on examples of different ways to show up as effective leaders that defy some of those old models. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I guess I want to just lead right to this. So based on that and the journey that you've taken, could you maybe share with listeners a situation in which you found yourself in a very challenging situation? Perhaps it was your identity, perhaps it was something that you were trying to lead the group with, and it required some real specific unifying efforts on your part to bring the room together, to make people feel like everyone was a part of it. Talk to us about how you may have overcome that challenge. Not necessarily in front of a, a group, but bringing people together. I can I can share more of earlier on in my career, this idea of purposeful disclosure. And this was when, you know, I was working, I was working at the White House, right? And so I did not feel safe in sharing 
aspects of, of my gender history uh, with my colleagues, right? So they knew I was bisexual, you know, and that was about as much as I could share in 2006 with like, okay, I know like I'm not going to lose my job over this because I know other LGBTQ people work here. Yes. Um, but I don't know, or I should say LGB people working there. I uh-huh. did not feel safe sharing anything about my gender history. So people saw me the way that you're seeing me now. They got my name and my pronouns right without, you know, um, second guessing, you know, anything about my gender history. However, you know, I, I needed access to, to some trans-specific healthcare, healthcare, some gender-affirming healthcare at that time. And so um, being able to share with my immediate supervisor mm-hmm. aspects of my gender history felt like a huge risk. And I'm bringing this into the conversation because it was an opportunity to highlight to my supervisor, hey, this organization, the way that it has been constructed, the way that we support employees, that was never thought, that was never, trans folks were never thought about how, how we kind of fit into that, right? And so it was an opportunity to, to bridge, you know, just to kind of alert to my supervisor, someone on their team has this need, is adding value to the team. And without this, without this healthcare, it will make it harder for me to show up and do my job, right? And so, so it was an opportunity for education. And I don't know if it's exactly answering your question, but those moments, like being able to draw back into my earlier days of like, oh my gosh, I never want another person to have to navigate a conversation like that and be unsure of how it will be received. You know, like I want, I want organizations to be mindful about not just like who they're intentionally including, but who they might be unintentionally excluding and what cost come, comes with that. And how do we make conversations, how do we make room for conversations about who we might be unintentionally excluding without shaming those leaders that have inherited the culture, but just like to be aware, like, yeah, there's, we're definitely not going to see everything, you know, we're not going to see all of the barriers, but how do we create an environment where we can engage in conversations that when a barrier is encountered by someone in our workplace, that there's a place for them to be able to share that without worrying about their job security, I guess. So that that was the first thing that came to mind. Absolutely. I see that as sort of a, a, a teachable moment is, you know, that mm-hmm. the, the cliche line, it's a teachable moment that you uh, saw that as an opportunity um, to be a teachable moment for that. For Do you mind if I ask what your role was at the White House? Yeah, I was. Um, so I worked in um, the Office of Management and Budget. So we were the budget nerds. So if the, if the White House had an idea, a policy idea, it was like, how much will it cost and how do we implement it? So we were kind of like, I mean, in some ways, you know, we really knew what the values were of of that particular administration. It was 2006. So I was a, um, a civil servant, so not politically appointed, not affiliated with like the, the party that was in power. Um, really what we were was, um, I, so I was a program manager and I was responsible for um, we were in the income maintenance branch, so we were viewed as the hippie branch. So it was basically <laughs> social security, disability insurance, supplemental security insurance, TANF, food stamp, all of that, right? All of these programs that really are kind of a safety net for some of the most vulnerable people in the United States. Right. We were responsible for managing those programs. Wow. And I don't know if your listeners remember that time, but it's 2006, so George W. Bush was president. And there were conversations about, the conversations started 2004, 2005 about privatizing social security. Yes, right? And that was before that well. the housing, it was before 2008. And, yeah. you know, uh, and our role was to kind of 
like price out those options and also advise like, hey, like if we did this, here are some considerations. If there are market corrections, this could be devastating for some people who their only portion of retirement is social security. And if that evaporates, we will have some really serious problem. I mean, we already have serious problems with people who age in retirement. Yeah. Um, and I think about those days and those conversations of like how much worse that would be had that had that vision, had that policy yeah. vision become reality. And so right. we were just, we were the nerds that kind of said option A, option B, this is the one we recommend and here's why. And yeah. we're very grateful that they they listened to that recommendation. <laughs> yes, indeed, I am as well. <laughs> I'm curious is, d- did that experience shape or influence your shift to what you do today? Yes, 100%. I mean, I think like in hindsight, right, when we think about our career trajectory, sometimes we do things. I mean, I I know for myself earlier on in my career, I think about some of my earlier jobs of like, how does this going to make any sense? Like one of my very first jobs, for example, I was working for the Department of Justice. Uh I thought I was going to go to law school. So it was right after undergrad. I was an honors paralegal. And I was working for the antitrust division, right? So this is like the division that tries to like make sure that monopolies don't happen. Uh-huh. And it was at the time that Microsoft was like the only operating system, you know? And so they were being sued by the federal government. Anyway, and I was like, okay, I wanted to be in the civil rights division, but I'll do this job and I'll learn some stuff. And now I look back on it and I do a lot of culture building work. And there's a project I'm working on. Two big national nonprofits are in the, um, the in the process of merging. So I have all this background from antitrust of like mergers and acquisitions. And now I get to layer on change management and a lot of DEI kind of um, kind of work that I do, capacity building, centering people in a merger, which very rarely happens um, as a priority, right? It's like people yeah. talk about oh, we should worry about culture, but like, let's talk about finance and law and how to, the logistics of a merger. The people are often the afterthought. Yeah. And these two organizations are trying to do it different. I'm like, oh, right. So thinking about that job or thinking about working at the White House and at OMD absolutely influenced what I do now. And even when I was in those positions, right, and this was at the federal government like 20 years ago, I was involved with Globe, which was kind of the LGBT ERG at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so always, like I was always doing the job that I had and still being engaged in some way of kind of saying, hey, I know this organization was built a long time ago. Like these government agencies are pretty, pretty dusty and they weren't necessarily, when they were created, trans people, LGBTQ people were definitely not considered in the creation of this culture. And we have an opportunity, you know, I'm one person, I at least want to start these conversations to make sure that we can, we can start to create some more space Mm. for future really talented employees who happen to be LGBTQ. So to me, like every job I had, I just wanted to drop the ladder down so that future people like myself don't have to have the same conversations with so much uncertainty. It's almost like, we've had these conversations. We're ready for you. Yeah, no problem. We can make that happen, you know? And so, so that's kind of how it influenced. That's how I see it yeah. influencing and, and pushing me in this direction of really supporting organizations today, leading with culture building, right. And, and really helping them see some of those barriers that are just not known to them without making them feel bad. Or you understand like working with leaders where it's just like not cut, catching them in a aha moment, but kind of providing some context of why 
this might be a learning edge for them, right? And to welcome them into that domain. Another, as we say, teachable moment. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so how do you go about forging new connections with people in a workplace or outside within your community? Are there are there different methods or techniques or approaches or habits or rules or something that you use? So can you say a little bit more about the question? Because I have an idea of where I want to go, but I just want to get a better sense of what you're... Sure. Well, I'm interested in trying to help listeners understand ways in which they can connect with people in their workplace or their community. And like, I'm yeah. interested in how guests go about forging and, and, and making those connections. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. So one, one thing that I offer in the work that I do, um, so part of my background is engaged in community organizing and getting out the vote. You know, I was a policy director at PFLAG National. So yeah. that was a huge part of, for us to be effective and advocating for kind of LGBT policy on the national level, we needed to demonstrate. We had members throughout, like we had we had members who are constituents in every district across the country. So this is not a blue state, blue city kind of, we only kind of work in these areas. We've got folks in, in rural Indiana, uh, rural Texas who are LGBT or allies of LGBTQ folks. So that community organizing and networking really has shaped how I do my work today. So um, an example is in my company, we have what's, what's called the belonging membership community. And this community was created largely for DEI professionals, mm -hmm. um, also for any executive who's trying to build up inclusive leadership skills. And it's really dynamic, you know, so we have about, about 100 people in this community that actively meet on a monthly basis, sometimes twice a month, where we are talking about some of those really sticky issues where there hasn't been a workshop, no one's written a book on this. This is like, wow, we're seeing a lot of DEI backlash right now. This is what it looks like in my company. You know, yeah. Michael, are you experiencing this in your company? You are? Like, how have you handled that? Because this is what we're doing. So it's a lot of it's a lot of identifying really sticky problems that we don't really have language around right now and workshopping together on, you know, just testing and changing. And then coming back each month to kind of check in on how did that go? Here's a new topic. Yeah. And we invite in thought leaders like yourself, you know, for kind of one-on-one -on -one interviews where I'll ask you a, a number of questions. And then the community, you know, for the second half hour is just kind of peppering you with like their specific questions, all done in private, right? So yeah, it's yeah. like, it's a safer space and, or it's as safe as we can create it. And, um, and it's really, really powerful. And we celebrate, you know, those big and small wins too. So it's not all kind of just living in the problem solving moments, but it's also just kind of being together. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know that you, you, you know, this well, like sometimes doing this work, it can feel very isolating, especially if you're internal in a large company and the weight of the company's culture is on your shoulders yeah. and you're like several lev levels below the executive leadership team and you're expected to make all this change, but you don't have the agency to make some of those independent strategic decisions. Right. <laughs> so it can be fatiguing. So that's why we created that space. And it's really, it really fills my cup. So that's kind of one way that, that we go about that. That's fantastic. That is great. I I would love to uh, join you at some point in that uh, in that journey. Absolutely, in that community. Um, okay, here's an impossible question. <laughs> great. <laughs> Not that there was others weren't. I don't know. Uh, what one thing? <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's impossible. Could yeah. you recommend to our listeners that could act as a catalyst for a more inclusive society or workplace? 
Okay, so I can see that that's a hard one, but something that's been on my mind a lot is this statistic, is that less than one in three adults in the United States knows someone who is transgender or non-binary or gender expansive. So it's I think it's like 28% or something like that. Yeah. And believe it or not, that's actually much higher than 10 years ago when it was like less than 15%. So I raise that because proximity to communities that are not your own communities is really, really instructive to learn about some of the things that those particular communities are up against that you just have no idea, right? And when we don't have access to friendships or acquaintances with people who aren't exactly like us, and in particular, you know, I'm using trans, trans communities as a, an example, it's very easy to get persuaded about what's happening right now in the United States around trans people. Like close to 500 anti-trans bills were introduced in 2023 alone. Oh. And these bills are fueled by misinformation that just dehumanize an entire group of people. And when less than 30% of the American adult population knows someone who's trans, it's easy to be persuaded of like, yeah, of course, like I would never allow my child to, you know, align with the gender that they say that they are, you know, it's like, they don't, they don't quite see the damage that that could cause by denying someone the ability to just express who they are and to become more self-actualized. So, so I guess the one thing is just really push yourself out of your comfort zone to engage in a community, you know, if you're invited to to join um, a community event that is um, as an ally, do that. Even if it's if it feels uncomfortable, be in spaces where you know maybe a friend or an acquaintance feels like, hey, you would really love this. You know, this is something that's different. Yeah. Um, it, take people up on that because it will expand your worldview. It will help you be more informed. And so, when you're in conversations with someone who might be repeating a talking point that's just misinformation you could say huh you know where did you learn that from and just kind of like engage them get yes. a little more context about why they're saying what they're saying and you could say you know i was invited to this community event um about you know this kind of community that you're talking about and that's actually not what i experienced and here's what i experienced right like you're more informed and and it can really help move people along to to also kind of expand their their networks and and to to get out of these these bubbles where i think in particular you know kind of living through the pandemic wherever we're at in it right now i think so many for many of us our worlds began began to shrink significantly because we were we were working from home some of us you know we were just kind of doing zoom with like our inner circle you know and we kind of we we let some of these these bigger networks kind of drop away for a bit so in some some aspects, you know, we're, we're in that process of rebuilding communities. So as you're rebuilding your communities, as you're kind of coming out of the pandemic, um, what are ways that you can start to rebuild community and in, in a way that just diversifies, like with the people that you have access to, if you're lucky enough to be invited in spaces that are spaces beyond kind of communities that you belong to. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to uh, meet new people or meet new communities on Zoom. <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> so glad we're, we're, you know, doing that less and less and getting out more and more, but that is a absolutely beautiful. I mean, I talk about, um, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable and a lot of people like scrunch up their face, like, why would I want to do that? And it's like, mm -hmm. you know what, you do that every day anyway, 
you just are, you know, you're not either conscious of it or whatever, but something happens during your day in which you feel uncomfortable. So why not do this? Why not just yeah. put yourself, push yourself out of the outside your comfort zone and, and uh, learn something. So I, I thank yeah. you for sharing that. And uh, I, I like that. Oh, sorry. I just, I, no, no, I like that you say that, you know, for, for folks that you work with and um, in, in the work that I do, you know, I, I, I really encourage people like when they notice that they're uncomfortable, like number one, like maybe know where it's happening in your body. If you have that ability to, yes. to name it, like, Oh, I feel this in my stomach or whatever, yes. but also that that signal often is the signal that you're learning. Right. You know, and I yes. kind of liken it to, you know, I'm a musician and kind of a visual artist. And it's like when the first time you pick up an instrument, you know, or the first time you pick up a paintbrush and you try to do, you try to make music or you try to paint like a beautiful landscape it's gonna look awkward and it's gonna sound really bad right it's it's that idea of awkward practice yeah and awkward practice usually kicks up like oh i'm not good enough i'm just gonna give up on this this instrument or i'm i can't draw i can't paint it's like rather than kind of living in that space just kind of recognize oh i'm learning something i'm learning something and it's gonna take some time to really practice this and i think with the work that, that we do yes. that kicks up a lot because Again, like we're working with leaders and they're used to being the knowers. They're used to like, you know, years of experience of like, I've seen this before. I'd like, I, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm good. And, you know, when, when we encounter those learning edges, as we, as we kind of grow and gain more experience, it could kind of be, it could, it could kick us off balance, you know, and, and that's where it could could stir up some of that resistance and and some of that as you said like, like the scrunching of the face and the you know the body language of right. like, you definitely are uncomfortable right but how do you see that as just like uh an indicator that you're learning um, yeah as, yeah i'm gonna take it back to sports you mentioned uh you know being a, a athlete and whatnot that, that there's that sentence or the line that people use mostly weightlifters but no pain no gain yeah right so, you know, yeah. you're not going to get further in your, in your uh, practice, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, mountaineering or whatever it is, you're not going to get further if you don't push yourself yeah, so, yeah. And, and feel some uncomfort. So I'm going to shift gears completely. <laughs> well, sure, not, yeah. not completely actually, but you know, we all perceive definitions to particular words slightly differently. And of course we come to the table with our own set of biases, but if I were to ask you what it means to be authentic, how would you describe that? And what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a really good one. In terms of authenticity, and I'm just going to kind of link it to, to the workplace, right? It's yeah. to me, it's having the agency, right? Having that choice, the agency, the freedom to show up as authentically as you want, right? And I think that's really important in the workplace because you know, generationally, I think of my parents, right? Where like to show up in the workplace, like for them, they're very, they're very, very private, introverted people. So, you know, hearing that message of like, be you, be as authentic as you want. Like, I think when I talk with them about that in, in the work that I do, from their perspective, it's like, I don't, that, that sounds like TMI, like too much information. And like, I don't want to share every little detail about who I am. Yeah. I'm like, right. But do you have the choice to do that? Like, do you feel like you could do that in the workplace? And there wouldn't necessarily be negative consequence coming your way. And yeah. at least for my dad, you know, who is a white cisgender straight guy, you know, he's like, well, of course I could do that, but I don't want to. I'm like, you have the, you have the choice, right? Not, not all of us have that, right? Like, yes. and then I use an example, like for myself, like there absolutely have been work situations where 
sharing aspects of my gender history could have helped inform a strategic decision or helped inform a program or a project we were working on. But I didn't have the agency to share that because I, I, I felt, you know, in some situations that there would have been really negative consequences, like job security was first and foremost on my mind. Yeah. And if not job security, not getting immediately fired, Safety. that threat of, you know, I'm going to lose some social capital. I might miss out on a promotion or a stretch yeah. assignment. No way I'm going to share this, even though it can help our project in this movie. Yeah. So that's kind of like how I relate to authenticity in workplace environments. So just having that agency, you know, to show up as authentically as you want. Yeah. And there was a second part of your question too. Sorry. I think I heard. No, that was, how would you describe it? And what does it look like for you? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's beautiful. I think it's, it, it's, I, it, it, it's something, I guess in a way, well, we, it might have to do with privilege. Oftentimes we, uh, different people have different kinds of privileges. And one of the privileges that most often people don't see the privileges that they have or don't recognize or are, are unaware of those privileges and having the privilege of agency to sharing those kinds of things is something that we don't often recognize. And so I think it's a really uh, a good place to start with authenticity. Yeah, yeah. And on the on that place of privilege too, you know, I realized like answering your question about like how has my gender history shaped and informed like how I show up um, in life, but in the workplace. And I would say it's really interesting to live almost half of my life, at least for the world to perceive me as a gender that is not my gender, right? But to perceive yeah. me as a girl or a young woman, right? And in earlier in my career too, just how hard it was for an idea as a young professional, number one at that time, but as a young pro professional perceived to be a young woman, to like even have space to share an idea, but for that idea to be considered more often than not, it was, it was ignored and kind of that classic thing of like, you know, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you know, a cisgender guy jumps in and is like, says the same thing. And everyone's like, that's brilliant. Right. That's right. And it's like, there's something real to this. We already know this from research. Right. But just to like another personal narrative is like, after the world started to perceive me as I see myself, right. Which is very affirming. It feels really good. The assumed intelligence or the assumed, like, you know, everything because you're a man like that started to happen to me in a way where I was like, why are you looking at me? Like I have the answer. Like, as an example, I am not a um, mechanically inclined person. You know, I didn't grow up with like someone teaching me how to like fix cars or do, you know, and I have people in my life who are like, Hey, can you help change this tire? Can you like help hammer this thing into the wall? I'm like, I don't know how to do that, but it's the assumed, the assumed yes. intelligence or the assumed knowing yes. because of the gender that I have. So that, that's how I see privilege play out in a way and, and in the workplace, right? Like when I'm speaking, it's like all eyes are on me, like waiting on every word that's coming out of my mouth. I'm like, I'm just brainstorming with you all. I'm not saying that this is the definitive answer, you know, and I'm aware of it because I'm seeing the dynamics happening. So I think it helps me as a facilitator, just kind of note observations of mm. who's talking, whose ideas are being considered and who's more silent and, um, or has said something earlier and people didn't kind of back it up. And then later on, another person brings it up and just kind of naming some of those dynamics because I'm, I'm probably more hypersensitive to it than maybe other people. Right. Right. What amazing observation and awareness that you have for that. That's just uh, incredible. Thanks for sharing that. 
Rhodes, this has been fantastic. We could talk for, uh, forever. Yeah. We, we talked, listeners, we talked for a long time before we even started recording. So I'll just let you know, there's yeah. a lot that's left off the table. But anyway, I, I just want to thank you so much. And I want to sort of leave listeners with one last thing that you could, you can leave listeners with one last thing, something that you could recommend, uh, I, you know, whatever, a book, a movie, a play, a TV show, something that um, has inspired you recently and tell us why. Mm. Well, since I I feel like I've been giving the audience a lot of like trans related things and yeah. I, I would encourage people, you know, and I have feelings about Netflix, but if you have Netflix, right, I would encourage you to check out um, the documentary Disclosure by Laverne Cox. And it's about how um, trans people are are perceived in India. But I think it will be really really eye-opening when we talk about proximity and just trying to get accurate information about the media that has influenced the ways that most adults think about trans people and some of the stereotypes that we might subconsciously hold, primarily because of how trans people have been depicted in movies and TV shows in the past. And I think some of that is starting to shift. Um, There's some really good programming now that have like really dynamic and interesting characters where um, the trans character isn't necessarily the villain or is someone who um, is struggling with like a mental health challenge. You know, it's like they're really dynamic and positive depictions of trans people. That hasn't been the case in the past. And I think that that film could could really open up some of your listeners' uh, minds around yeah. like, wow, you know, that has definitely influenced me. And I didn't realize that that was a trope or a harmful stereotype. And now I'm more informed. Um, so that's that's one thing. And it's uh, Laverne Cox is awesome if people are familiar with her. And she's not only like, you know, a very famous, you know, actor who is like on Orange is the New Black and shows like that. Oh. She's been a longtime advocate um, and yeah. does so much for, for trans people um, in the United States and beyond. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you again, Rhodes, for this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to Authenticity, Belonging, Community, the podcast that explores the ABCs of inclusivity. For those who are new to the podcast, welcome. We appreciate you listening and hope you discovered something here that will make you want to revisit as well as share with others. And if you're a returning listener to the podcast, formerly known as Incognito the Podcast, we hope the new brand aligns with what you've come to expect from the show. In our continuing journey to expand our listenership, I'm making the big ask of you to help share and spread the word. I've raved many a time on this podcast about what a delight it is to speak with the wide variety of guests we've had and how each episode offers so much to take away and learn from. I hope you will rave as well. I welcome your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Until next week, keep asking questions. (laughs) 